Well, this morning, uh, as I said earlier, I'm starting a, a short two-part series called This Easter. Everybody say, This Easter. So we're starting this series today. It's called This Easter. This Easter, make a difference. This Easter. And, and uh, so today I'm going to talk uh, about feeling what Jesus feels. This Easter, feel what Jesus feels. In just two weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter together here at Solid Rock Church. It's always one of the most exciting Sundays of the year. One of the things that's different about Easter, though, as opposed to, say, Christmas, is that Christmas, we know exactly when it comes. It's always December 25th every year. Easter is different every year, depending on the, the moon and all kinds of stuff. Uh, Easter can be in early April, late April. It's even been in March. And so it's a moving target, and sometimes we don't even know when Easter is. So I'm telling you, it's in two weeks. It's April 21st. Another difference between Easter and, and uh, Christmas is that one of the things that we do at Christmas time is we spend several weeks getting ready for the Christmas season. We decorate our houses, we buy gifts, we go to parties, we, we plan our family meal. A lot of attention, a, a lot of attention goes into celebrating Christmas. But it's easy. To get to this time of year, to the spring, without even knowing, as I said, when Easter is. And there is no preparation. There is no little or, or no anticipation or preparation for that. Uh, a lot of anticipation for Chris, before Christmas. A lot of preparation. People around the Christmas season ask each other, so are you ready for Christmas? No, I still got to shop. Nobody asks, are you ready for Easter? Easter? When, when is Easter? I mean, it's just not, not the same. And, and so, consequently, sometimes Easter comes and goes without anything significant happening in our lives. Easter comes and goes, and we're the same. We're unchanged. Nothing changes. And that's too bad, because Easter is life-changing. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is life-changing if we embrace it, if we allow God to transform us. So my challenge today and next week in this short two-part series, my challenge is this Easter, make a difference. This Easter, determine that things will be different. This Easter, decide to make a difference in your life and in the lives of others. So how can we do this? How can we make this Easter different than other Easter's where we might have just gone through the motions? And so... One of the ways we can do this is this way. This Easter, feel what Jesus feels. This Easter, feel what Jesus feels. And we're going to read from the book of Luke, chapter 19. The notes should be up on version, And so if you want to follow there, you can. Or you can, of course, look them up on, on your Bible. Either way, I'm, I'm going to ask you and encourage you to stay engaged with what we're doing today. Rather than just listen to me uh, speak, I'm going to encourage you to read the scriptures so that we can stay uh, engaged in today's message. So Luke 19, beginning with verse 41 as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, this speaking of Jesus, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. 
They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now this event that we just read about took place uh, on what we now call Palm, call Palm Sunday, the day in which Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. And uh, it was a, it was a, we'll talk some more about this next week. It was a very exciting event. People were <coughs> praising Jesus out loud. They were worshiping Him. They were welcoming Him into Jerusalem. But, and, and we know that story. And we celebrate that next week. Many churches will be celebrating that event with palm branches and with lots of uh, praises and songs about praising Jesus and worshiping Jesus. But something else happened on the ride into Jerusalem that we don't talk about too often. In fact, many people have never even noticed that this event happened at the exact, on the exact same day in which Jesus entered victoriously into Jerusalem. In fact, we all... We all tend to get um, caught up in the emotion of the story of the triumphal entry. We tend to get caught up in the crowds, the shouts, the emotions, the excitement that we ignore something else that happened that was not uh, loud praises, that was not palm branches, didn't involve palm branches And yet it's a very, very important truth for us to look into this morning. Now from all indications, the crowd that was worshiping Jesus, praising Jesus as he went into Jerusalem, they didn't notice this either. Matthew didn't record this story. Mark didn't mention it. Luke is the only gospel writer who records this event at this time. But we don't want to miss it today. And and we read in, in verse 41 that at Jesus' approach... Jerusalem and saw the city. He wept over it. He wept over it. Now, when you, when you read that, Jesus wept over the city. I don't know what comes to mind. I don't know what image comes to mind. Do you see Jesus just kind of uh, maybe standing there, or maybe sitting on the colt on the donkey, just kind of quietly crying, maybe some, some quiet sobs as he looks at the city? I don't know if that's what you think. Uh, that that's really what I used to think many years ago before I realized in, in reading that the Greek word that is translated wept in our Bibles is a Greek word, klaio, klaio. Now, I don't know Greek. I had to look this up. I even had to look up how to pronounce it. But this word is klaio. And the word klaio in the Greek, which is what this book was written in, means more than just merely shedding tears. The word klaio means to bawl. It means to cry out loudly. It's a word that describes what one might do at the grave of a loved one when they're saying goodbye. Or when you first hear the news that, that just breaks your heart that you've lost a loved one. Klaio. It's not a, a quiet sobbing, just quiet. But it's a crying out loud to where people around you hear that. It's the same word that's used of Mary's cries at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. It's the same word that's used of Mary Magdalene's cries at the tomb of Jesus. It's the same word that's, that's used in scripture of Peter's bitter weeping. The Bible says that after Peter denied Jesus, 
And the, the rooster crowed and he recognized that what Jesus had said was going to happen, that he was going to deny him, had come to pass. The Bible says that Peter wept bitterly. This was a, uh, again, not just a quiet weeping, but this is a crying out loud. This is a bawling. This is, a, as we say now, an ugly cry. This is an ugly cry. So I want you to get to picture this morning. Jesus is weeping. He's bawling openly for the people of Jerusalem. He's not crying for himself. He could have been because he was about to face a cruel, cruel death. Not just the death, but the, the scourging that he had to go through. You know, the, uh, the, those, those days, or that, not days, but those hours in which he was, he was judged. He was found guilty. It was a, a terrible uh, kangaroo court. And he's found guilty. Then he's tortured. He's tortured, and then he's, he's killed. He could have been crying for himself, but he wasn't crying for himself. But he was crying for the city and for the fate that would come upon that city. So rather than hearing the joyful shouts and the praises that were heard all around, it seems like what Jesus was hearing was, uh, were the screams and the cries, uh, the shrieks, the groans of men and women and children who would die in that city when, as he prophesied in, in the year 70 A.D., this is what he prophesied. In the year 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus invaded the city. He, he raised it completely. He destroyed the temple. So everybody else was having a celebration. Jesus was filled with compassion for the lost sheep of Israel who didn't even know their sad condition, their own sad condition. So this Easter, I want to challenge you. This Easter, don't just celebrate by dressing up the kids for church. Go ahead and do that. We love to do that. But don't just celebrate with that. Don't just celebrate by planning a big family meal. We love to do that too. Eat with our family at Easter. It's a great opportunity. Don't, and definitely don't celebrate by going out to the lake and skipping church on Easter Sunday. But this Easter, feel what Jesus feels. This Easter, make a difference by feeling what Jesus feels. This Easter, allow your heart to be broken for those that are hurting, for those who are wandering, for those who are searching, for those who don't even know that they're lost, don't even know the true condition of our heart. Many people use this time before Easter, this time of Lent, uh, to, to, to draw closer to God. Uh, we as a church, of course, we don't celebrate Lent, but uh, I, there's nothing wrong for us, or nothing wrong rather with us deciding, I'm going to use this time to draw closer to God and reflect on the cross, reflect on what Jesus did and, and how I can respond to that. But let me tell you, you know, some people during Lent then say the, the, way, the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to give up a certain food or I'm going to give up a certain activity that I like. I'm going to give something up, you know, as a way to try to show devotion to God. Let me tell you how you show devotion to God. Devotion to God shows up in our love and concern for lost people because God loves lost people. So devotion to God shows in our love and concern for lost people, not in prioritizing our wants and our needs above everything else, including the lost that Jesus loves. So we can think about ourselves or, or we can think about the lost. And Jesus 
not only wept for the lost, but he died for them. Now we can't die for, for anybody, but we can weep in prayer for the lost, for their spiritual condition. We can weep in prayer asking God to save them. This is what Jesus did. And, and, and in fact, this is a pattern. This is not the only time that we read that Jesus wept, that he wept out loud. In fact, in the same book of Luke chapter 13, if you go with me to uh, Luke 13, 34. This is uh, another occasion in which the Pharisees had told Jesus, you need to leave. And the Pharisees weren't really concerned about Jesus. They were more mocking him than anything else. But he told them, you need to leave because Herod, Herod is wanting to kill you. And, and basically, Jesus' answer was, I'm not worried about Herod. I'm going to keep preaching. You go tell that fox, he's, uh, Jesus said, that I'm not worried about this. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep teaching. I'm going to keep uh, proclaiming the gospel. And, uh, and he says, I'm not worried about being killed in Jerusalem either. And then, he's, and then he goes into... Verse 34, Jerusalem, now he switches to talking to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he's, again, proclaiming this lament over Jerusalem. In chapter 19, we see him crying, also proclaiming a lament over Jerusalem, over what they were to face. He's saying, I have wanted to, I have wanted to, to, to gather you. I've wanted to protect you, but you wouldn't do this. You killed the prophets. He's, in essence, saying, you're going to kill me. He's weeping over their spiritual condition. And so, this is something that Jesus did on more than one occasion. In fact, Matthew places the same lament that we just read in Luke 13. Matthew actually places it on Tuesday of Passion Week, two days after the triumphal entry. We don't know if Jesus repeated the lament two days later. Uh, the gospel writers were primarily concerned about theological considerations. And so, the very precise chronology that we're used to in our culture always took a back seat to the gospel writers. They, they could have moved it. For example, what, what we read in 13, uh, Luke 13, 34, the writer could have put it right there just because Jesus was talking about Jerusalem and he could have placed it there. Uh, the, the point remains is that we see a pattern of Jesus expressing sorrow for the spiritual condition of the people and Jesus showing them love and compassion. This was not an isolated event. He truly cared for these people. He longed for them to know Him. He longed for them to know Him and to follow Him passionately. In fact, in Matthew 9.36, we read this. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and they were helpless, 
like sheep without a shepherd. And so he had compassion on them. He knew their true spiritual condition. Their true spiritual condition is that they were lost, that they were helpless, that they were hopeless, that they were like sheep without a shepherd headed for destruction. Sheep need a shepherd. They can't take care of themselves. And so Jesus saw this in in the crowds to whom he was ministering. He saw that they were harassed. They were helpless. They were headed for destruction. And he had compassion on them. Compassion on them. And so the thing that we have to remember and learn from this today is this. When we see the true spiritual condition of our friends and family members who are without Christ... We should respond with compassion, just like Jesus did. When we see the true spiritual condition of our friends and our family members who are without Christ, we should respond with compassion. Because it's easy for us to ignore the spiritual condition of the people around us. One day, several years ago, I drove by a church here in town that had the following message on their message board. The message said this, You're not lost. Maybe just mislaid. Come in and we'll help you find yourself. Now, I, you know, I, I understand trying to be very careful in your approach, how you approach people who are without Christ. You know, I, I certainly don't. I've seen those message boards that are very uh, condemning. And I, I sometimes see those message boards that are very condemning. And I think, who would want to go to that church when you're telling them on that message board, you know, if, if, if you're not following Christ, you're going to hell. Well, it might be true, but, you know, why? that's not a good approach. But neither is this where you just say, oh, you're okay. You're not lost. You're okay. It's easy for us to ignore the spiritual condition of the people around us because we see that they're moral people who work hard and they mind their own business. They may have caring hearts. They give people... To people in need, they may even give the shirt off their backs to help those people in need. But let's not forget this about our friends and family members. Let's not forget that if they have not accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for their sins, they are spiritually lost. They may not look lost. They may look like they've got the world by the tail. But if they have not accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross for their sins... They're spiritually lost. If they're trying to earn their salvation by being good, by giving up certain things and thinking they can balance the good with the bad, if they give up the the bad things in their life and try to do some good, and they think that they can be saved by their works, then they're spiritually lost. The Bible makes that very clear. So what should be our response to them? What is our response to them? If we feel what Jesus feels, we should respond with compassion that leads to tears in praying for their salvation. Feel what Jesus feels. Not just what he felt back then in the story we just read, but we know he feels it even today. Because even today, he is interceding for us. He's interceding for people to come to know him as their Savior. So our response should be one of compassion. But what often happens is that we respond with apathy. As, as in, well, why should I worry about them? They seem to be doing fine. Why should I care about somebody else? I've got my own problems. I've got my own situations. Why should I care about somebody else? Well, because Jesus cares about them. Feel what Jesus feels. 
for them. And sometimes, even in our own family, there's an apathy toward people in our family who are in a, in a lost spiritual condition. And, and we say things like, you know what, my kids are adults. If they don't want to come to church, I'm not going to be begging them. We don't have to beg them, but have some compassion for their spiritual condition. Don't just say, you know, they're adults, they do their own thing. I raised them, I did the best I could, now they're on their own. Well, that's fine, but you've got still some moral authority over them, so you can still certainly pray for them, and then invite them and encourage them and say, hey, you weren't in church. Is everything okay? I think about Sister Emma, because I remember the stories about how she would, um, Edna and would, you know, I heard her say that she would talk to her on the phone. And the first thing Sister, Sister Emma would say, did you go to church this weekend? And I'm sure that, uh, that uh, Petey and Bernice would hear the same thing. Because, you know, as parents, we'll still have some moral authority over our kids, even when they're adults. And so we've got to have some compassion. And I say, well, they're, they're adults. Let them take care of themselves. Apathy never works And Jesus was not indifferent. He was not apathetic toward those that were lost. Now, if somebody is living a a totally depraved lifestyle, totally depraved lifestyle, a life of immorality, sin, drugs, sex, whatever it might be, we might respond with anger. We become angry with people who have made the wrong lifestyle decisions. And we want to just stay away from them as far away from them as possible. And sometimes, sometimes we might even hope they get what they deserve. Because they rejected God. They deserve that. Let me tell you, that does not reflect the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is a heart of compassion. Even for those that are living a totally depraved lifestyle. And Jesus was not, was not weeping over good people who were just misguided. He was weeping over people who a few days later would be shouting with hate, crucify him. That's who he was weeping for. Over people who hated him and wanted nothing more than to see him die. And yet his heart was filled with compassion. You know, more and more in our culture, we're dealing with people who hate Christianity and hate Christians. How do we respond to them? To people who hate Christianity and who hate Christians. Not anger. Not anger. This is why, and you've heard me say this before, and I keep up with, I keep up with politics and our government, but I hold politics very loosely. I hold it very loosely because I know what it's like to hold on to a political ideology so strongly that I start hating people on the other side. That does not reflect the heart of God. So neither apathy nor anger nor pride nor pride. It's easy for us to respond with pride and to feel superior to people who are lost, spiritually speaking. It's easy for us to respond with pride and feel like, hey, at least, I, you know, at least I go to church and my kids are in church and I got my act together. Because we don't talk like they do. We don't act like they do. We don't dress like they do. We're in church right now and they're not. So it's easy to respond with pride. That's not the right response either. To respond with pride is wrong. So is anger. So is apathy. The right response is compassion. Compassion that leads to prayer. Compassion that leads to interceding 
for the lost. That's what Jesus did. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he wept with compassion. He wept with compassion. Jonah, you know the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? Jonah looked at Nineveh and he didn't weep. He ran. He ran in the opposite direction. And you know what? If you know the story of Jonah and how God called him to go to Nineveh and to preach to Ninevites, um, if you know that story, you know that he seemed to have good reason to hate the Ninevites. He seemed to have a good reason not to want to go preach to them. Nineveh was a wicked city. It was, it was more wicked than we can imagine right now. It was the capital of, of the Assyrian Empire. And what the Assyrians did is that they would conquer people. They would go into cities. They would conquer cities. And when they, when they conquered them, what they did to other people was so horrendous that it defies description. Whenever they attacked a city, here's what they would do. They would torture and kill all the children. Torture them, not just kill them. Torture and kill the children. Torture and kill. They would rape and then kill the women. Then they would kill all the men. And the way they kill the men is they would skin them alive. And they would bury them up to their necks. They would drive a stake through their tongue. And then they would just stand back and watch them die. What a horrendous... Horrific, awful thing. And then they would cut off their heads and they stack up their heads as trophies to show the rest of the world why they should fear them, the Assyrians. I mean, historians, historians say that it was not uncommon for entire cities to commit suicide when they knew that the Assyrians were coming. That's how bad they were. But the Assyrians were loved by God. Like, God, how can you love a people like that. And that's why God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to the Assyrians. But Jonah didn't weep for them. Jonah ran the other way. Eventually he went to preach to them. But then he became angry when they actually repented. That's not what he wanted to see. And if you have been a follower of Christ for a long time, you know how easy it is for us not to, hopefully not to go to the extreme that Jonah was in. But maybe we tend to lean in that direction. It's very easy to feel a disconnect with those who live immorally, but we've got to remember they're precious souls to God. They're precious souls to God. I mean, do we really understand grace if we don't love sinners, if we don't love the lost? We might sing amazing grace, but you know, how, how do we express this grace, the same grace that Jesus showed us to the lost? We might sing amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? But what is really amazing is that God would love that person that is so unlike us. That's what's really amazing. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you wept over this city of San Angelo? When was the last time you wept over San Angelo? You wept over the Concho Valley. We're not really going to have an impact on our city until we carry such a burden that we weep for the people without Jesus here in our community. And there are many. Will you pray this morning, God, 
burden my heart. God, break my heart for children, for teenagers, for adults who live around me, but they're blinded to the truth about Jesus. All you have to do is read the news, the local news, and, to, and you'll see that there are people who desperately need Jesus. Many of you know that William Booth was a founder of the Salvation Army, and uh, at one time he sent a group of Salvation Army soldiers to a certain city to try to evangelize that city, and they failed. They didn't have a good result in that city. So they telegraphed General Booth, and they told him, look, we, we tried everything. Here's what we tried to try to reach people, but nothing, nothing worked. They said, we tried to feed them, we tried to clothe them, we tried to provide housing for them, but there was no response from them. And so they told him in this telegraph, what do we do next? We've tried everything, nothing worked. What do we do next? And so General Booth telegraphed two words in response to them. Two words. The two words were, try tears. Try tears. Try praying. Try weeping over them. So I, I want to challenge you today. Ask God to burden your heart, that He would burden our hearts, and let's try tears. Because this is what Psalm 126 says. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 reads like this. Those who plant in tears, those who sow in tears, will reap with shouts of joy. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with a harvest. If we want to see a harvest of souls, a, a, a harvest of souls, people who desperately need God, they, they, they don't even know their own true spiritual condition. If we want to see them come to Christ, then we need to plant with tears so we can harvest with joy. We need to sow with tears. We don't have to manufacture the tears. We just ask God to help us see the, their true spiritual condition. Ask God to help or ask Him rather to break our hearts for the lost. To take our eyes off our own life for just a few moments. And look at the lives of our neighbors. Let me go back to Matthew 9 as I get ready to conclude. Matthew 9. And I'll give you the rest of the story from Matthew 9.36. Matthew 9.36. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into, this, into his harvest field. Ask the Lord of the harvest, because the harvest is plentiful. See, if we're saying, I invite people that just won't come. Jesus is saying, that's not true. If we're saying, nobody will come to Jesus anymore. Jesus is saying, that's not true. The harvest is plentiful. It's there. It needs to be harvested. It needs to be brought in. But before we bring them in, we have to pray. We have to pray for workers. And if we're praying for workers, you're going to be the first ones to hear that prayer. Other than God, of course. And we have the first opportunity to respond to the call for workers. And so if we pray with tears, if we plant with tears, then we can go out 
to this plentiful harvest and bring it in. But the workers that are needed for the harvest are men and women who feel what Jesus feels. The workers that are needed for this harvest are young men, teenage young men, teenage women, young women like this story I told you of Jennifer. Teenage young ladies, young men, adult men and women who feel what Jesus feels, who feel the compassion, the love, the concern, and that burning desire to see them, see the lost, know the abundant life that Jesus offers. So we need, in order to bring in a harvest of souls, workers who shed tears in prayer and plead with the lost in inviting them to come to Jesus. And so this, this Easter, make a difference. This Easter, feel what Jesus feels. If you're not feeling what Jesus feels, then ask God to burden your heart today. Ask Him to burden your heart that we might feel what Jesus feels. I want to give you an opportunity to respond today. I want to give you an opportunity to to respond today and to ask God, Lord, break my heart. My heart has been cold. And if you know, you know, if our hearts are cold toward God, they're going to be cold toward the lost. So maybe we need God to break our hearts, to remove a heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. And so here in a few minutes, we're going to pray. But first, I want to I want to sing a song, and uh, this song is called Asleep in the Light. We've sung this before. I've sung this before. I've been singing this song for many years. It's a Keith Green song. Keith Green, as many of you know, was a young man who died when he was 28 years old. He wrote a lot of music before then. Um, he wrote a lot of music that was very challenging, and this is one of the songs that was very challenging. He died in 1982, about two weeks before our wedding. My wife and I were going to get married in, uh, on August uh, the 7th of 1982. And two weeks before that, Keith Green was killed in a plane crash. And I was, I was devastated. I almost canceled the wedding. No, not really. But I was devastated. But he had a, a lot of songs. He wrote a lot of songs that were very challenging. And his wife would tell him, Keith, are you sure you want to write that in that song? She was always, you know, the wife may, may be concerned that people would get offended. And his concern was just that they would, that they would know the truth. And so this song is, um, is a challenging song. This song is a song that talks about how we as a church are not having an impact on a world that's sleeping in the dark because we're asleep in the light. And so I pray that as, as we look at this song together, that we'd be able to respond to God's call today. So I'm going to ask our, our band to come, and we're going to sing this song. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you gonna let them drown? 
so numb not to care if they come. You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord. Oh, bless me, Lord. You know it's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. But he cries. He weeps. He bleeds. And he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? at peace and all the heaven just weeps cause Jesus came to your door you've left him out on the street open up open up see the need, you hear the cries, so how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one, but like Jonah you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark, that the church just can't fight. It's asleep in the light How can you be so dead When you've been so well fed Jesus rose from the grave And you can't even get out of bed Oh, Jesus rose from the dead Come on, get out of your bed Come away with me, my love. 